Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Um, first, a few words on the process. Uh, you were all polled on your way in, on your opinion for our, uh, uh, our motion tonight. Hitler's Pope, Pius XII, did too little to save the Jews from the Holocaust. You were polled on the way in, and I will give you the result of that poll after we've heard the opening speeches. And you will be polled at the end. Now, you should have a ticket, and that ticket should have a little for or against. Make sure you hang on to it for the, the, the vote at the end. And if you're still undecided at the end of the evening's debate, then take both pieces and put them into the urn that comes around. Good. So that's for the, the, the voting process. Our motion tonight, Hitler's Pope, Pius XII did too little to save the Jews from the Holocaust, is, a, is an important topic. And indeed, for those who watch this uh, space, something significant happened in July of this year, which was that the Holocaust History Museum, Yad Vashem, um, changed its description of Pius XII and stated that his reputation was not just as the old label had it, a matter of controversy, but a matter of controversy amongst scholars. You can infer from that what they thought it previously was amongst. <laughs> Seems like no better time, therefore, for Intelligence Squared to uh, make this debate a debate here uh, and uh, a serious debate amongst scholars. Um, therefore, let me immediately welcome our first speaker for the motion, John Julius Norwich, historian, prolific author, and author, amongst many other things, of The Pope's a History. John Julius Norwich, welcome. <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, on the 18th of May, 1917, Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli travelled by train from Rome to Munich as papal nuncio, bringing with him, incidentally, 60 cases of food in case German wartime rations should offend his delicate digestion. Two years later, in April 1919, during the confusion following the end of the First World War, a trio of Bolsheviks, led by a certain Max Levine, seized power in Bavaria, where they made life extremely difficult for the diplomatic corps. Pacelli, who characteristically refused to meet them himself, sent his deputy to register a protest and reported back to the Vatican. The scene at the palace was indescribable, the confusion chaotic, the filth nauseating. A gang of young women of dubious appearance, Jews like all the rest of them, hanging around in all the offices with lecherous demeanor and suggestive smiles. The boss of this female rabble was Levine's mistress, a young Russian woman, a Jew and a divorcee who was in charge. This Levine is a young man, about 30 or 35, also Russian and a Jew. Pale, dirty, with drugged eyes, hoarse voice, vulgar, repulsive, with a face that is both intelligent and sly. I don't think Julius Streicher could have done much better than that. Much was to be written in later years of Pius XII's love for the Jewish people. But I think uh, that quotation surely suggests that uh, such reports may have been somewhat exaggerated. On matters of colour, on the other hand, he made no pretense. A quarter of a century later, as Pope, we find him asking the British Foreign Office for assurances that 
no colored troops would be among the small number that might be garrisoned in Rome on the occupation. On the other hand, he had a passion for Germany. On March the 6th, 1939, just four days after his election as Pope, a year after Hitler's annexation of Austria and with German troops already massing on the Czechoslovak frontier, he personally drafted a letter. To the illustrious Herr Adolf Hitler, Führer and Chancellor of the German Reich, here at the beginning of our pontificate, we desire to express the wish to remain united by deeds of profound and benevolent friendship with the German people who are entrusted to your care. Now, this letter was not only the first addressed by the new pope to any head of state, but we also have the word from one of the official uh, historians of Pope Pius XII that, and I quote, in length and in the sentiments it expresses, it differs totally from the other official letters sent by the Vatican at that time. Well, on the 1st of September 1939, the, the Wehrmacht marched into Catholic Poland. Over the next five weeks, the Poles lost some 70,000 men. From the Vatican, however, there came not a word of revulsion or regret, still less of denunciation. This deafening silence continued until the third week of October, when the Pope published his first encyclical, Summi Pontificatus. Now, at last, Poland received a mention. The blood of countless human beings, non-combatants among them, has been shed and cries out to heaven, especially the blood of Poland, a nation very dear to us. Well, it was doubtless better than nothing. But look at that phrase, non-combatants among them, which somehow suggests that there were relatively few of these rather than the vast majority. And nowhere in the text is there any mention of Germany or Nazis or Jews. Hitler, as we know, had no similar compunction. The Jews, he declared on the 9th of February 1942, will be liquidated for at least a thousand years. Within a month, active persecution, persecution was underway, not only in Germany, Austria, and Poland, but in Hungary, Croatia, Slovakia, and in Marshal Petain's unoccupied France. Before the end of the year, the mass deportations had begun. 42,000 French Jews had been packed off to Auschwitz alone. In September, President Roosevelt sent a personal envoy to the Pope to beg him to condemn the German war crimes. But still, there came not a word from Rome. The Papal Secretary of, Star uh, Secretary of State, Cardinal Luigi Maglione, would repeat only that the Holy See was doing all it could. It wasn't. If only because, as 1942 due to its close, the Vatican had something else on its mind the possible bombing of Rome. The British minister to the Holy See, Sir Darcy Osborne, was being summoned almost daily and entrusted to, uh, uh, entreated to, uh, to extract a firm undertaking from the British government that there would be no air raids on the Holy City. In vain he pointed out that Britain was at war and Rome was an enemy capital, and even if the city were spared, it was highly unlikely that the Italians would be given advance notice of the fact. Finally, on Christmas Eve, the Pope made a broadcast to the world. It called on men of goodwill to make a solemn vow to bring back society to the center of gravity, which is the law of God. And it continued, mankind owes that vow to the hundreds and thousands of persons who, without any fault on their part, 
sometimes only because of their nationality or race, have been consigned to death or to a slow decline. And that was it. Once again, no mention of the Jews or the Nazis or even of Germany. The racial element has been toned down by the addition of those two weasel words, sometimes only, while the millions of victims had been reduced to hundreds and thousands. And what precisely is a slow decline? Could that be what the Auschwitz survivors suffered? Well, now, until now, until 1943, uh, the Jewish community in Rome, about 8,000 strong, had been allowed to live relatively undisturbed. But in July 1943, everything changed. The Allies invaded Sicily and bombed Rome. Mussolini was arrested, Rome came under German occupation, and on the 18th of October came the order to round up the Jews. What was needed now was for the Pope to make a vehement protest against this new outrage, which was taking place on his very doorstep. Had he done so, he could very probably have prevented the whole thing. But silence once again ensued, and the deportations went ahead. Now, Papal apologists will tell us of the numbers of Jews who, in the later stages of the war in particular, owed their lives to the intervention of the church, particularly in Hungary. Though even here, things were pretty slow in getting underway. The Germans invaded Hungary on the 23rd of March, 1944, and the loathsome Adolf Eichmann began his work at once. It was nearly two months later, on the 15th of May, that the papal nuncio requested the Hungarian government, and I quote, not to continue its war against the Jews beyond the limits prescribed by the laws of nature and God's commandments. Surely a rather curious limitation. And the rescue operation began in earnest only after a cable from the Pope himself, one again, once again not mentioning the Jews by name, on the 25th of June. After this, thanks to the Hungarian church and the Catholic laity alike, countless lives were saved. And there were other, other heroes too notably the perfectly splendid Father Hugh of Flaherty, working inside the Vatican, saving not only Jews but escaped Allied soldiers. The Pope paid tribute to him at Easter 1945, a month before the end of the war. It would have been nice if he'd had the courage to say so a little earlier, with rather more publicity. And why did he not? Because of his terror of communism, a far greater bugbear to him than Germany, Nazi Germany would ever be, or fear that any protest might result in the German occupation of the Vatican and quite possibly his own imprisonment. Either or both may be true, but there are other questions too that demand explanation. After the end of the war, he continued as Pope for another 13 years. Why was there not one word of apology or regret, not a single requiem or mass of remembrance for the 1,989 Jewish deportees from Rome who had met their deaths in Auschwitz alone? Why did the Pope, who cheerfully excommunicated all members of the Communist Party across the world, never apparently consider doing the same to the Catholic Nazi war criminals, including Himmler, Goebbels, Bormann, and, of course, Hitler himself? And why, until the very day of his death, did he refuse to recognize the state of Israel? I'm looking forward to hearing the answers to those questions. Thank you very much, John Julius Norwich. I'm very pleased to welcome William Duino, our first speaker against the motion. William Duino is an author who writes about religion, history, and politics. 
He's contribu contributed an extensive bibliography of works on Pius XII to the Pious War, Responses to the Critics of Pius XII. William Duino, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Intelligence Squared, to the distinguished panelists, and to everyone for being tonight. I'd just like to uh, correct my distinguished uh, opponent, John Julius Norwich, on a few things. He referred to Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli in 1917. He was not a cardinal until 1930. Touche. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, that's the least of your errors, I should say. Uh, he referred to the, the supposedly anti-Semitic letter. If he knew anything about the letter, if he read uh, Professor Rishlock's book, he, he would know that that's complete mistranslation. He's giving the John Cornwell translation. It's been completely discredited. He never said, for example, Jews like all the rest of them. It, it was a mistranslation from German into English. So that's his second major error. And then he referred to a very serious error. He referred to Eugenio Pacelli, Pope Pius XII, uh, not wanting any black or colored troops. He never, mentioned, he, he never mentioned those words. It was the British ambassador. And just recently, let me say, I discovered the testimony of one Roy Otley, who was the first African-American correspondent who was granted a special audience with Pope Pius XII. And Roy Otley himself wrote dispatches back to the United States and elsewhere talking about how powerful a stand Pope Pius XII took against racism. And he associated that with the stand Pope Pius XII was taking on, on behalf of the Jews. So right from the very beginning of this debate, it's clear that Mr. Norwich did not do his homework. We asked the question, who is Eugenio Pacelli? Who is the man that eventually became Pope Pius XII? And what specifically did he do on behalf of the persecuted Jewish people? And in order to answer that question, we have to make a critical distinction between the real historical Pope Pius XII and what might be called the non-historical Pope Pius XII. I think we heard, I think we had a good example of the non-historical Pius XII in much of the commentary that we heard from Mr. Norwich. The reality is that the allegations that he made against Pope Pius XII, that he was silent, that he was indifferent, that he was hostile to the state of Israel, these are completely untrue. The reality is that at every stage of his adult service to the church, when he was the papal nuncio in Germany, when he was the cardinal secretary of state in the 1930s, when he was the pope himself during the 1930s and, uh, 1940s and 50s, Pope Pius XII did take a stand against anti-Semitism. He did warn against Adolf Hitler early on, and he did intervene on behalf of his Jewish brothers and sisters. Let me cite you a few examples. As early as 1916, the department in which Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pope Pius XII, worked issued a declaration condemning anti-Semitism that was recognized throughout the world. In 1921, just two years after the Nazi party formed, he was warning his fellow Bavarians not to allow the danger of communism to blind them to the, danger, the rising danger of Nazism, just two years after the Hitler party was formed. In 1923, he writes to the Vatican, still 10 years before Hitler obtains power, warning them about the fanatical anti-Semitism as well as anti-Catholicism of Adolf Hitler. The following year, he writes another letter to the Vatican in which he predicts that this fanatical nationalism that the Nazis are exhibiting could well become the greatest dangerous heresy of our time. In 1929, the year before he leaves Germany for good, this is still four years before Hitler obtains power, 
He's warning everyone that he can talk to that this man is a madman and he cannot understand, as his personal assistant, Sister Pasqualina, mentions in her own memoirs, why the people of Germany and elsewhere do not see this, what, what can be clearly seen. This man is a madman. He's capable of trampling on corpses and destroying everything in his path. And then in 1930, the year he becomes Cardinal Secretary of State, one of the first editorials that appears in the, news, the Vatican's official newspaper is one that declares, the party of Hitler stands condemned by the ecclesiastical authorities. And in the text of the body of that editorial, it says, national socialism, Nazism, is irreconcilable with the Catholic conscience. None of these facts was mentioned by Mr. Norwich. It's not surprising, therefore, that by the time he is elected Pope Pius XII, the world welcomes Pope Pius XII because he is the one of the few people that has taken a stand against this rising danger and he's one of the few people that has condemned the twin evils of the time, Nazism and Communism. After he becomes the pontiff, he immediately does five or six things that establish him as the powerful and effective leader he is. First of all, he writes a blazing encyclical. Mr. John Julius, my distinguished opponent, tried to minimize that encyclical. But this is what the New York Times itself wrote about that encyclical. It said, presenting a picture, a picture of contemporary life as devastating as any of the Old Testament prophets could have done, the pontiff proclaimed his determination to step forward boldly. Racism, the violation of trees, recourse to arms, the forcible transfer of populations, the destruction of Poland, these and many principles dear to fascism are condemned. It is Germany that stands condemned above any country or any movement in this encyclical. The Germany of Hitler and National Socialism. That was, that was the reaction to his first encyclical. That's hardly the words of Hitler's pope, hardly the words of an enabler. The other things that he does at that time is that he after the Nazis invade Poland in September of 1939, he authorizes Vatican Radio to condemn the Nazis, which it does quite explicitly in the name of the church. He then, he then contacts the anti-Nazi German resistance very early on in the war, and he gives his approval to a plot to overthrow Adolf Hitler. In addition to this, he instructs all his papal nuncios in all the Nazi-occupied countries to take a stand in favor of persecuted Jewish community and against the racial persecutions, which they do. Several of those, for example, Angelo Rata from Hungary, Andrea Casulo from Romania, have already been recognized and declared righteous by Yad Vashem, the most distinguished Holocaust museum in Israel. But it's not just that he instructed others to take up the cause of the persecuted Jewry during their darkest hour. He himself took personal actions. <coughs> One of his finest hours, which Mr. Norwich unfortunately tried to downgrade, was during the German occupation of Rome. The reality is that the Germans themselves tried to exterminate and they targeted the entire Jewish community at that time, thought to be upwards of 10,000 Jews. Because of his quick and decisive action, because he set not one, but not two, but three protests, and because he instructed all the Catholic religious and lady to open their institutions and do whatever they could to save the persecuted, over 85% of Rome's Jews were saved. It is not true that they were saved because other people did so. They, did, they were saved because Pope Pius XII issued his protest and he did take a stand. And incidentally, 
It is also not true, because I've spoken to many of the Catholic recipients, that he was sound. Vatican Radio was declaring what was going on at the time, and they, they were, the, the Catholic rescues themselves have said, Pope Pius XII was our leader. We heard his messages during those years, and because of that, we rescued the Jews. So he has things completely wrong. Now, it's, it's often debated among historians how many, how many Jews did Pope Pius XII and the entire Catholic Church save. Just recently, a very distinguished historian from Germany, Dr. Thomas Breckenmacher, said he thought that it was at least 100,000. That's on the conservative side of the scale. I've actually interviewed Sir Martin Gilbert, and when I asked him directly how many he thought that the entire Catholic Church, under the leadership of Pope Pius XII, saved, he said it was in the hundreds of thousands. Michael Berlay, another great distinguished historian, also believes it's in the hundreds of thousands. So what we are, I want to stress here, we are not talking about a low-scale or small uh, intervention here and there. We are talking about a grand global humanitarian effort that saved more than any other individual or institution at that time. Under no circumstances, therefore, could this resolution, which says that he did, quote, too little, be taken seriously. In conclusion, I'd just like to write, mention one, one story that many of you have probably not heard about, but I think which symbolizes the true worth and compassion of Eugenio Pacelli, Pope Pius XII. In 1917, the first time he got to, as a young papal nuncio, got, got to Germany, there was a Jewish musician by the name of Osip Gabrilowicz. Osip Gabrilowicz was arrested on false charges because an anti-Semitic pogrom was accusing him of being a spy. His wife was desperate. His whole family was desperate. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know who to turn to. They went to the politicians. They went to the police. No one would help them. Finally, they went to their own friend, Bruno Walter, another Jewish conductor. Bruno Walter was told in desperation, the only chance you have left is to go, to go to see a church official. Perhaps he could head. And Bruno Walter, to his great credit, went to see the now, the very young, very new Eugenio Pacelli, the papal nuncio. And in his memoirs, theme and variations, Bruno Walter says, we spoke to the, the very kind and generous papal nuncio, and he said, the very next day, the very next day, Osip Gabrilovich, who had faced execution, uh, was a free man. And it is of striking significance, ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about who Eugenie Pacelli, the real Pope Pius XII, was, that his very first decisive act as a papal nuncio, as a career church diplomat, was to save the life of a Jewish musician from an anti-Semitic mob. That's the real Pope Pius XII. That's why, when he became Pope 20 years later, he was such a good and compassionate leader. And I hope tonight we all open our eyes and we see that. Thank you all very much. William, William Duino, thank you very much. Um, I'm very uh, pleased to welcome Jeffrey Robson, QC, leading human rights lawyer and the author of The Case of the Pope, Vatican Accountability for Human Rights Abuse. Let me say, as I say this, that all of these books will be out in the foyer at the end. <laughs> and I'll sign them. It's great to stand in this historic place of the dissection of corpses. And... Uh, we're not so much dissecting a corpse tonight as the soul of a man who could not bring himself to speak out publicly against the Holocaust. Now, when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, Elie Weissel, who was a Holocaust survivor, sent this message to all 
uh, of that persuasion who dare not speak out against great evil. He said, take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victims. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And this is a truth that applies to the silence of Pope Pius XII in face of the most heinous crime against humanity ever committed, even when it was taking place under his very windows. He never spoke out. He never lit a candle for Christian morality that should have shone in that blackness, a blackness that in consequence covers him as well. His silence gave license to Catholic members of the SS to shoot the Jewish men, women and children as they cowered on the edge of the mass graves. It to turn on the gas in the concentration camp chambers and then to go to confession with an untroubled conscience. It encouraged the Germans in the belief that God was still on their side. We shall see how the Nazis desperately needed the Pope's silence for that very reason. They knew that any complaint by the pontiff would damage the war effort and slow the progress of the final solution. It gave so many Catholics the excuse not to help Jewish refugees, although many did. It gave some Catholics, including quite a few priests, the excuse to man the rat lines to help the SS criminals escape after the war to Latin America. The Pope's silence in face of this overwhelming evil was a deliberate choice. It was an immoral and counterproductive choice. How different this Pope was to the Catholic leaders who helped to scupper the Nazi plan in the 30s to liquidate the mentally ill. That was stopped when churchmen spoke out. If you want a moving argument against silence, read one Joseph Ratzinger, who tells of his childhood. Our entire village, he says, in Nazi Germany, experienced a sense of liberation when Cardinal Clement of Munich broke the silence and publicly defended the mentally ill who'd been marked for extermination. How many other Germans, a few years later, might have experienced a spiritual liberation had the Pope spoken up in similar terms for the Jews when they were marked for extermination? I don't suggest that Eugenio Pacilli was a Nazi. He was an upper-class Italian aristocrat who greatly feared the communists, the Pacilli estates uh, wouldn't have survived had they come to power in Italy. He shared the upper-class suspicion of the Jews, ingrained in him was the long-standing Catholic condemnation of the race as the sinners who had killed Christ. But test it this way, after the war, when it was safe to do so, right up to his death in 1958, Pacelli never said prayers for the Holocaust victims, not one measly requiem mass, and he totally opposed the state of Israel, refusing to recognize it. As for the six million Jews of Europe, he never lifted a bejeweled finger or stretched a vocal cord in their, uh, to save them. Why did he lack the moral principle to say loud and clear that the extermination of the Jewish race is wrong? When that Hockerth play raised this problem so dramatically in 1963, the first response of Vatican apologists was to claim that the Pope didn't know about it. When that didn't work, they tried another tack. Yes, he knew all about it, but he didn't act because he didn't want to make it worse. Well, how much worse could it be? He didn't act because he didn't want Catholics to suffer the same fate. 
really? Can you imagine Hitler, a Himmler, a communicant Catholic, gassing his own congregation? He didn't act, they say, because he had to stay neutral in case he had to broker a truce. No one ever asked him to broker a truce, and a truth, truce with Hitler that would leave the Nazis in place uh, was hardly on the cards after America entered the war. So let us examine these excuses in turn. The notion he didn't know, ridiculous. He knew all about the Ustasha massacres of Jews in Croatia in 1941 because anti-Pavelic, the movement's founder, was a fervent Catholic. Instead of excommunicating him, he welcomed him to the Vatican. He was told of the final solution soon after it was planned at the Wawanzi Villa in February 1942. As one book says, quote, in all likelihood, the Vatican learned of the plan shortly after the Nazis decided, decided it. That's a quote from Hitler, the War and the Pope by Ronald Richlack, who will speak next. It began in uh, Slovakia in March, the final solution, when 80,000 Jews, mainly women and children, were deported to certain death. Still, the Pope did nothing. Had he done anything, it would have had an effect, because Slovakia was a Catholic country headed by President Joseph Tiso, who, believe it or not, was a priest. The Pope heard about the gas chambers from priests, from church officials, from Abbot Scavizzi, who was a, really a spy for the Vatican, uh, working with the Knights of Malta. He's told the Pope that the massacre of the Jews in Ukraine is by now nearly complete, uh, and in October he said that two million Jews had already been killed. By that time, the Pope knew of the special camps with the gas chambers, informers from the Waffen-SS and the German military intelligence, passed a talk along the Italian ambassador to Berlin, told him that even the SS talk openly about the executions. Bishop von Preysing, one of the Pope's closest friends, begged him to speak out to save the Jews of Berlin who faced, quote, certain death. But, uh, of course, he didn't, and the Vatican records show that by the end of 43, early 44, they were speaking of four million Jews lost in Eastern Europe. But even then, the Pope said nothing at the end of the war when it was entirely safe to do so. By speaking out then, he might have moderated those final inhumanities in the camps, and he would certainly have discouraged priests and Catholic lay people from helping the Nazis to escape justice. And it's not credible to claim that his neutrality was justified in order to broker a truce. No one ever asked him. The apologists claim that papal condemnation of the gas chambers would have made Hitler so angry that he would have killed more Jews or perhaps even bombed the Vatican. But this is nonsense. According to all we know of German diplomacy and strategic thinking, the Pope's neutrality was central to the Nazi strategy. It was essential to keep their soldiers believing that God was on their side, or at least on both sides, and it would shatter that belief if they heard that the Pope was not. Now let's consider the case of the Roman Jews, 85% saved. Oh yes, those arrests when the Germans came in and rounded up a 1,000 Jews a big danger. We have Ribbentrop, the foreign minister, and his envoy at the Vatican, von Weizsäcker. And we know what they said to each other because we've got their telegrams. Von Weizsäcker telegrams Ribbentrop. 
stop Himmler arresting uh, Jews in Rome, or the Pope might make a public stand which will serve anti-German propaganda, unquote. Really nervous that the Pope might speak out. You see, this had become a propaganda war, the Allies against the Axis, democracy against fascism, for the future allegiance of the world. It's not like the First World War, where at Christmas on the Somme, the contending armies would sing Silent Night and play each other at football and make believe God was on both sides. This was a deadly ideological battle, and the question of the Pope was the question of whether God sided against the extermination of the Jews. And that is why the Nazis so desperately wanted the Pope to say, stay silent, and why von Weizsäcker warned Ribbentrop that the roundup in Rome might push him over the edge. Listen to his telegram to Ribbentrop about the, the roundup of the first thousand Jews. The curia is dumbfounded, particularly as the actions took place under the very windows of the Pope. The reaction could be muffled if the Jews were employed in labour camps in Italy, i.e. not sent to the gas chambers. Our enemies are turning the action to their own advantage to force the Vatican to drop its reserve. Well, the first deportation happened at dawn. On October the 18th, 1,023 Jews were crammed into freight cars and transported to Auschwitz. 820 of them were gassed within a week. Only 17 returned. Throughout it all, the Pope stayed silent, resisting all the pressure to condemn this wicked operation. And von Weizsäcker was delighted. He telegrammed Ribbentrop, the Pope triumphantly, the Pope has not allowed himself to be stampeded into making any demonstrative announcement against the removal of the Jews from Rome. He's done everything he could, even in this delicate matter, not to injure the relationship between the Vatican and the German government, i.e. the government and its extermination policy. That telegram says it all. The Pope did everything to help the Nazis and nothing to help the Jews by signaling through his silence that God, of whom he was the representative on earth, did not object to genocide. He discredited and betrayed his own God. If he'd protested on the 18th of October, those freight cars jammed with Jews may not have left the station. The train might have been diverted to Mauthausen, which had no gas chamber. The Italian resistance might have been emboldened to attack and release the prisoners. Had the Pope condemned the evils of Nazism, the Holocaust might have been halted just as the mental defective uh, elimination program was disbanded after Catholic leaders in the 30s had done it. It said that Pope Pius feared that the, if he condemned them, the Nazis might bomb the Vatican, or take him prisoner. Well, that would be an admission of cowardice, or at least a concern to save the wealth and splendor of the church by doing the wrong thing. The documents show there was never any danger that the Nazis would attack. All they asked of the Pope was his silence, and they received it. Not all popes, of course, are bad or incapable of moral understanding. Pope Pius XI, Achille Ratti, who'd allowed fascist flags to fly in his cathedral in the early days, after Kristallnacht and the Italian race laws, commissioned three leading Jesuits to draft an encyclical. Yes, well, it, it remained on his desk when he died. His successor, his successor never issued it. Uh, the unity of the human race, uh, the encyclical against Nazism. Uh, racism spread its poison, unchecked and undiluted, 
by a man who claimed to be the world moral leader, Mr. Pacelli, the Bad Samaritan. Jeffrey, thank you very much, and thank you for wrapping that up rather rapidly. Um, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to, uh, a very, very warm welcome to Ron Rischlack, uh, Professor of Law at the University of Mississippi and the author of Hitler, the War and the Pope. Ron is our final speaker against the motion, Pope Pius XII did too little to save the Jews from the Holocaust. <clears throat> thank you very much. It is... Thank you. It's very nice to be back in England. I have twice have taught summers at Downing College in Cambridge. The last time I taught there, my wife and our five daughters were there in a small row house with one bathroom. It was the most productive summer of my life because I got out of the house very quickly over to the office before that all started. I did just come from a conference at the Sorbonne in Paris where they brought together scholars on Pius XII from... They're from France, from Germany, from Israel, from the UK, from the United States, um, some other nations I'm sure I'm forgetting. At the very end, the convener, the provost from the Sorbonne, uh, said, no one in this room would use the term Hitler's Pope. It's ridiculous. Because the arguments that we're hearing from our worthy opponents tonight are arguments that were valid perhaps five or ten years ago before serious research was done on many of these things. However... As we say in the United States, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. And I think the facts are very distorted, what we've heard tonight. Uh, I want to go directly to, to, to the Weizsäcker statements and going to his communications to Germany. What about what he was saying to the Vatican? At the same time he was saying to the Vatican, to please don't make a statement. If you do, we will immediately come in and round up all the Jews. About 2,000 were rounded up originally. About 1,000 were released the 1,000 did get shipped off and were killed, but the vast majority of Jews in Rome were saved and were saved directly by intervention, by rescue, by opening up every seminary, every convent. Uh, in fact, there, there are pictures uh, of the papal summer home where not only in every room, but up and down the hallways, up and down the staircases, people were sleeping because the, the rooms, the buildings were made available to refugees, not only to Jews. There were, there were others. There were down British airmen who were being sheltered. There were gypsies. The, you know, there, there were, there were, there were uh, uh, AWOL German soldiers who were given uh, protection by the church at the time. Uh, but, but to think that, that it was an uncaring pope that was doing these things is simply ridiculous and, and, uh, and, and not feasible today. In fact... At the end of the occupation in Rome, the chief rabbi of Rome, who had been protected by the church, converted to Catholicism. Now, he said this. He said, I did this because it was a true conversion, a vision of Jesus. It was not in thanks and tribute to the pope. However, he did take as his Christian name Eugenio in tribute to the pope, and he did have the pope serve as his godfather or sponsor into the church. Uh, he rec and he spoke profoundly about all the church had done to protect Jews during this time. In fact, there was a, 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 a statement of tribute put up at the synagogue in Rome thanking the, the church and the pope for all that was done. The pope, and a reference made earlier about the pope and his delicate stomach, the pope went on wartime rations during the war. 
the people out in Rome could not have hot coffee, so he could not have co hot coffee. Although he was over six feet tall, he weighed 118 pounds by the end of the war. Uh, he saw his parents' bodies blown out of their, their crypts uh, when uh, bombs fell upon Rome. In terms of what he did early in the war, one, perhaps one of the most amazing things, uh, he actually forwarded information about German troop movements 10 days before the, the, the German troops went into the lowlands. Afterwards, he sent telegrams to the leaders of those nations expressing his uh, deep regret of what had happened, promising them better days would come in the future, telling them not to give up hope. He outraged Mussolini uh, because he'd clearly sided against Mussolini's ally, Adolf Hitler. Pius, on the other hand, had very close relations with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It established the beginning of uh, what eventually would become formal re recognition, formal relationship with the United States. There's an amazing book about the letters back and forth. At the very end of the war, uh, FDR wrote Pius thanking him for his collaboration against religious and racial persecution. And in context, that could be nothing but uh, what he did in terms of helping with the Jews. Why not a more ex exacting uh, a bully pulpit kind of statement from the Pope? Well, there were several pieces of information that he had going that he had to rely upon. One of them was he wrote an important statement uh, about the Nazi occupation in Poland. And he had it smuggled into the archbishop who was in charge of the church in Poland. Uh, and the archbishop looked at it, burned the letter, sent a note back in Vatican archives now, saying, Holy Father, thank you so much for this statement. It's so important the people of Poland, you, you know, to know that you feel this way. But I can't do this because this will get people killed. A similar thing happened in Holland where the bishops made a statement and it got people killed. This is the information coming back to the Vatican. The Vatican, the Pope, had to decide where can I make an effective intervention. The bishops in the United States were very outspoken, expressly talking about Jews and the Nazis and Hitler. How come? A free press that was not suppressed, that would actually get around to people, at least in that nation. And no risk of retaliation that you faced every place else that the Pope might have made a statement. The Pope relied upon his bishops. What did they say? If a bishop could be more forceful, the bishop would be more forceful. Less forceful, that's what you had to do. The Pope didn't come down and, and, and enforce a uniform approach in every location. He relied upon the Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity, which says, you know, let's look locally and deal the best we can that way. Uh, by the way, Summi Pontificatus, the first encyclical issued by the Pope, six weeks after the outbreak of war, did in fact uh, refer to Jews. It quoted scripture saying there is no Gentile or Jew uh, in the church. During that time, the Pope was also very active with Vatican Radio and Vatican, the Vatican newspaper, prompting many protests, in fact. Uh, the, uh, the Nazis called uh, Vatican Radio the mouthpiece of the Jewish war criminal. Um, in terms of actual threats to the Pope, there was an order, and I have the transcript of my book, from the German general who got the order from Hitler to draw plans to invade the, to invade the Vatican and capture the Pope. The Pope ha held a meeting with the Curia discussing what was going to happen when the Nazis came in because everyone thought it was going to come. come. Uh, the Nazis were just across. There was a white line. Rome was occupied. There's a white line on the ground. On one side, you've got Nazis with submachine guns. 
On the other side, you've got the Swiss soldiers with their, with their pikes. So it's not going to put up much of a defense for very long when the Nazis decide. The Nazis on the ground convinced Hitler not to do this because they said, if you invade the Vatican, the Italians will, will not tolerate this. It will be impossible for us to maintain the occupation, so you have to back off on this. And that's how eventually the, the uh, invasion, the kidnapping, did not take place. However, that was a very serious threat. Upon the liberation of Rome, Mussolini is, is out of office, the king has fled, everyone comes out of hiding and flees to the Vatican, cheering the pope, the defender of the city. Pius XII said Jews for too, for, you know, have long been tolerated, but we have to move past that now. It's time to welcome them, them as our friends. The Israeli Philharmonic uh, in 1955, I think it was later on, came and played a concert of tribute of thanks for all the Vatican had done for saving Jews during the war. While there, they offered the future Pope Paul VI a medal for all he had done. He said, I only did what the Pope told me. Don't, don't give me a medal for that. John XXIII, when offered thanks for all he did, essentially said the same thing. I only carried out the Pope's, Pope's orders, first and foremost, to save human lives. These types of statements, this kind of information, refutes the accusation that the Pope did little or did nothing. Um, the, um, uh, the state of Israel, I'm, I'm touching that because that, by the way, was an important point at the, at the uh, conference in Paris. In Paris, no one argues about whether the Pope should have... We didn't talk about the Pope so much. It was really ancillary things. But there was debate about how the Pope felt about the state of Israel. The Pope agreed with the establishment of a, an Israeli state somewhere. He wasn't certain about whether it should be located where it is located today. However, when the vote came up in the United Nations, a coalition of about 30... Catholic na uh, nations came to the Pope and said, is it okay for us to vote in favor of locating the Israeli state in this location? And he said that would be acceptable. 17 of them did, 11 did not. But he was in a situation where he could have said no, vote against it. He did not say that. Uh, so uh, with respect to the rules, I will wrap it up at this point. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ron Richlack, and thank you for uh, sticking very uh, precisely to your time. Um, now, thank you to all our distinguished speakers, and now is the time for uh, you, the audience, to ask some questions. But before you do, let me tell you how the voting has gone. So, um, before the debate, for the motion, so against Pope Pius XII, 146 of you. Against the motion, so supporters of Pope Pius coming in, 41 of you. However, there were 170 of you who didn't know. So this is all to play for. The floor is now yours. I'll take questions in bunches. The lights are quite uh, bright. So, so, so if I haven't seen you, do wave your arms about. So there's someone there in the front row, and then I'll take the person up there in the top left, and then after that, the person right up at the back. So the person in the middle in the front row, go, go ahead. Yes. 
Um, so thanks very much, gentlemen, for your uh, comments and your contributions. Um, I was there when Geoffrey Robertson spoke against the current Pope at the time of the papal visit, and his gift at fiction has not decreased. Uh, one of the Heinrich Himmler, a devout Catholic, never heard that before. Can uh, you, but can you introduce can yourself just, oh, sorry, and also my make sure Peter, to ask a question? My, I'm just about to. My name's Peter Williams, and my question would be, given that uh, Geoffrey Robertson brought up that piece of fiction, Destelvathre, the deputy, um, the play by Rolf Hochoth, uh, what does he, and indeed the rest of the panel, think of the comments by Jan Mikhail Pacheper, who was the head of uh, one of the Romanian spy martyrs who defected to the West, and has spoken recently about how he knew the KGB fed documents, doctored documents, to Rolf Hocker, deliberately to slander the Pope and to discredit the Vatican? Very good. Um, th th this gentleman up here. Uh, Bernard Herrmann, two short questions for the opposition. Very short, in, then. Yes. In 1917 in Munich, which has been referred to, the Papa Nancio Pacelli refused to assist the Jewish community, unlike his predecessor, in allowing the importation of a tabernacle with a Jewish vessel of Sukkos through the neutral offices of the Vatican, which was completely surprised to the Jewish community at the time. My second question is... Rome was liberated upon June the 4th, 1944. The deportations of the Hungarian Jewish community did not conclude until July the 27th, 1944. In the intervening six weeks, about 200,000 Jews were deported. Now, the Pope would have had no problems or no threat from the German occupying forces during those six weeks. So far as I'm aware, he said nothing or did nothing. Thank you. Then we had someone right up at the back there, no, I, th I think whose who's, uh, who's question's obviously already been asked. So is there one more question? I have someone in the middle there. Yes. Uh, I'd like your reaction, the last uh, Could you introduce yourself? Sorry, my name's David Franklin. Um, the last speaker. Um, surely your last comment nullified the entire direction um, of your argument in that um, if the Pope wasn't certain where the Jewish state should be, um, where Jesus Christ lived in, uh, lived in Jerusalem, uh, where the Jewish uh, state was originally formed a thousand years before, uh, the whole history of the Jews was, being, was in uh, Jerusalem and in the area known as Israel, uh, how in this in any way could indicate that the Pope um, had warm feelings towards the Jews, whereas there is only one place in the world that is undoubtedly connected to Judaism? Thank you. Good. Three excellent questions. Geoffrey on the KGB slander. <laughs> well, uh, so be it. Uh, the communists don't need to invent the Pope's silence, the Pope's silence speaks for itself, so to speak. Uh, it was, it's there as a matter of history. He never mentioned the Jews, he never mentioned the concentration camps, he never condemned the final solution. It didn't need the communists. So quite frankly, whether, I think it's a Romanian general, isn't it, who's, uh, sorry? Spymaster. Spy Spymaster, yes. It happens. I'm, uh, I have a university degree from uh, Bucharest, and I know a number of uh, Romanian generals who uh, have a very low opinion of this particular spy master. But I won't play that card. I will simply say, I will simply, 
I will simply say that John Julius here is not renowned for taking Moscow gold. And the cases I'm doing at the moment happen to be against Russia, the Ukraine, and Georgia uh, for the Stalinist uh, perceptions that still cover their court. So we're not communist dupes. Uh, it didn't. I, I'm sure that the communists were very happy to see this issue raised by the Hookhoth play in 1963. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was a play, and I'm do, sure do, it Does made anyone many on mistakes. this side want to comment on the KGB conspiracy theory? Uh, yeah, I would be happy to. I have uh, been working with Ian Mahayapachapa, who, uh, I, the thing that, that uh, just to give an example of, what, of how communist uh, infiltration or disinformation affected the, the approach to Pope Pius XII. After World War II, former Catholic Croatia is now under Soviet domination. Cardinals, in the United States we say Stepanak, in, in Croatia they say Stepanitz, was, was given a show trial. False information was manufactured to indicate that he was complicit with, with the Utasha regime. Uh, in the 1960s, when the issue breaks about Pope Pius XII, uh, Falcone, uh, Carl Falcone, Carl, uh, Carl Falcone uh, decides to write a book. And in trying to find evidence, he goes to the prosecution from Croatia. And he, he writes an entire book about Pope Pius XII based upon this Croatian information, which we now know is doctored. And yet that <laughs> book has influenced uh, the study of Pius XII throughout. John Cornwall. Uh, Credited Falcone for his, his magnificent work he did, cited it frequently. But after uh, Yugoslavia came out after, uh, from the thumb of communism, the first thing they did was apologize for the show trial. The records show that the evidence was manufactured, but it's tainted the in entire uh, perception and the viewpoint and the, the, the vision from which we look at Pius XII. So, so, so William, do we know wants to come in yes. on this question? Well, yeah, I just want to add one thing. It's not difficult to understand why the Soviets began their campaign. At the end of the Second World War, Nazism having been defeated, the great struggle was then between Christianity and the churches, more or less, and the Western civilization that, that were sympathetic to them, and the communist world. Now today, because communism has become so discredited, we tend to think it, it's incredible that anyone and so many people would have been entranced with communists. But at the time, it was very real. And I have two articles right in front of me from 1946 and from 1947, where the communist campaign is already underway. Pravda, the Soviet newspaper, alleges pious Hitler, Hitler pact. And again, in 1947, Russian says Pope shields fascists. So the, the campaign against Pius XII as Hitler's pope, as shielding Nazi war criminals, which, by the way, is not true. He supported the Nazi So, so, so this side believes that there is motive oh, there's no there question. There's for, documentation for, 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 the, for, for the doctrine of the evidence. Now, John Julius, would you like to comment on the KGB Well, I mean, I theory? think, again, this is the same old thing that... Uh, if you'll forgive my saying so, uh, that uh, America is always worried about. I mean, there's, there's always the tendency to see communists under the reds under the bed. Uh, I don't uh, think... Excuse me, sir. 20 million people have died and they're not under the bed. They're in they graves. They have. They're in graves, sir. So don't make light of that fact. I'm not allowed to make light of that Yes, you are. No, no, I'm yes, not. On the contrary. But I see, I remember, which I don't think perhaps... I don't have to. But I remember... <laughs> I remember the whole of the, the years of, of, the, of Eugene Mac uh, McCarthy. I remember all that going on. And everybody was being accused of being a communist. 
And I think that there is only one thing we need to remember, which I absolutely accept, which is that for Eugenio Pacelli, communism was worse than Nazism. Absolutely false. Now this, absolutely this false. Nobody, nobody argues that. Nobody's ever argued that. Absolutely, absolutely false. Absolutely. Of course we do. I don't think that I, I've certainly not argued it myself, and I can't see anybody else. He but told the, it's numerous it? ministers that the first thing that we have to do is defeat Adolf Hitler. And as a matter of fact, because he was the greater danger, and as a matter of fact, they wanted him to condemn the communists during the war, and he intervened, and he said, uh, because, they, because America wanted to give aid to Russia, and a lot of people thought that the Pope would condemn that. In fact, he intervened in defense of American lend precisely to help Stalin defeat Hitler. He wanted so a separate truce. No, he you wanted have a separate truce with wrong. Nazi Absolutely Germany wrong, sir. and just carve Absolutely off wrong. Russia. Okay, so, 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 so let's. You're not a communist no, student. No, no agreement on uh, the Pope's attitude towards communism. Let's go to, to the. So, so there, are, there, there are some more uh, uh, rather detailed historical questions. Does anyone on this side like to take uh, the, the 1917 refusal to assist the Jewish community for the festival of Sukkot and uh, 1944, this time between? The Hungarian, between the liberation of Rome and the Hungarian deportation. Well, I just mentioned one thing on the Hungarian question. One of the greatest Jewish historians ever, General Levi, he's among the first and greatest historians. He has written an entire book called Pope Pius XII Was Not Silent, Hungarian Jewry and the Papacy. And he shows, contrary to what was implied, that in fact, at the very earliest stages, Pope Pius XII was sending instructions, and on his behalf, there were statements and vigorous protests against the deportations. Now, of course, he couldn't control the mania of Hitler and his forces, but he took a very strong stand, and I would suggest that anyone who wants to read about this should read the book, Pius XII Was Not Silent, Hungarian Jewry in the Papacy by General Levine, because he details the fact that Pius XII was not silent, and he did speak out. Okay, so on, the, on that point, simply untrue. Anyone want to pick up 1917 sure, sure. in Munich? The, the, the 1917 letter, uh, uh, is the one where a, a Jewish uh, leader came to, to the future Pope Pius XII and asked for assistance in obtaining palm fronds to carry out uh, a, a Jewish ceremony. And, uh, and, and, and Pius, who essentially was a low-level administrator at this time, said, I can't help you. Uh, and, and he wrote to Rome the letter, the letter where, where he said, uh, this is not a matter of life and death. This is not a matter of of helping someone who is in suffering. This is a matter of a religious thing. The import, the, the, this would have required violating Italian uh, export-import rules at that time. He said, we simply can't do this for this situation. That's what it was. Then the, the, the letter came back from Rome saying, congratulations on handle this, handling this appropriately. John Cornwall mistranslated that and said, for your shrewdness in handling this, implying some underhandedness, but that was not the proper translation of that letter. Any I think any I'm, I'm right in saying that actually when Pius had, uh, he, or he, he, he gave a, a perfectly nice, correct answer uh, to the head of the Jewish community and said, I will forward it, but I don't think there's very much chance of it happening. It's all very difficult now and the, the problems. I can really offer you very little hope. But then he reports back to Rome and says, I didn't see why I should help them uh, in the, in the uh, uh, practice of their Jewish cult. But, I think me. that was the actual phrase. 
Now, you might say cult is, is, is perhaps a rather unfortunate word because it, in English it's loaded. It may not have been so loaded right. in Italian. Culto is a perfectly okay uh, Italian yeah, word. So I think that is, that is a little unfair, and I'd like to make that point. Well, I'm great, but nonetheless, I think he, the reason he didn't want to do it was because he didn't want to, he, he, well, he didn't really want to help the Jews. Well, it, it was because he said it was not a matter of life saving or or something like that. He, he said it was for a religious cult. Or religious but he really purpose. did believe that they were the sinners who had responsible for the killing what, of Christ. No, that, that's absolutely what, incorrect. One no, quick it's thing. absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And that correct. is why you talk about the Israeli Philharmonic and so on. The reasons why the Pope was congratulated by some Jewish leaders who wrote about the reasons later was firstly because they were thanking uh, a number of Catholics who had helped uh, towards the end of the war to uh, save them. Secondly, because they wanted, they asked the Pope to issue a refutation of this blood libel that they were responsible for because they saw it as encouraging the Holocaust and he didn't. And then of course, thirdly, they wanted him to recognize the state of Israel, which he okay. certainly well, did I not. Think it's offensive. Do you know I this? think it's very offensive to, to, to question the genuine uh, appreciation of the Jewish community for Pope Pius XII. He is subtly implying that their motives were something other than that, and I think that's oh, wrong. That's what some can, of them said. Can we say. move on to the, another important question, which is, uh, which is the Jewish state and not wanting to recognize this in historic uh, uh, historic. Well, yeah, I, I don't think it nullifies everything. Uh, uh, the Pope was concerned that if we, we establish the... Uh, number one, I don't think you should say Jewish people have one place where, where they should be allowed to be or can, I mean, you know, or, or tied, because I mean, that was the suggestion in the question. The Pope said, they have an, they, I see the need for a homeland. I recognize establishing a homeland. He said, if you put it here, I'm worried about what's going to happen. It was, you know, there might be some violence in the long run if you, if you put him there. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would uh, like. But but when the point came, when push came to shove, and the Catholic nations that were members of the United Nations came to him and said, "Should we vote against this?" He said, "No, you don't have to vote against it. Do what you think is right." The majority voted for it. He could have said, "You know, vote against it," and they would have. Let me just see if there's any. Do, would you like to? Uh, anyone on this side like to comment well, anyone, on his well, attitude towards once Israel? Again, as, uh, he, he was doing what he always did. He was avoiding the issue. He, he, he wouldn't take a stand even on that. He said, you do what you like. He, he, he wouldn't even say, yes, do it or don't do it. I, I would refer my distinguished colleagues to an obituary in the Jewish Chronicle uh, in Octo October. But when did the Vatican uh, October, first... Uh, excuse me. 1994, wasn't it? Excuse me. October the 10th, 1958, the day after Pius XII died. And the Jewish Chronicle points out that as early as 1917, this is the year he was supposedly indifferent to the Jewish community, according to our colleagues, 1917, he, he helped Nahum Sokolov, who was an early Zionist leader who wanted a, an established homeland for the Jews. He, he created a, an opportunity for him to meet with the Pope. And during the, after 1917, he kept in good, close contact with Nahum Sokolov, uh, right up until Sokolov's death. I should also point out that in 1944, when Pope Pius XII was Pope, uh, according to the Jewish Chronicle, he told Lord Gort, the newly appointed High Commissioner for Palestine, that he would have no problem and he would not want to interfere with uh, uh, the establishment of a Jewish homeland 
in the state of Palestine, and that he was filled with profound sympathy for the Jews. So the reality that he was, the, the, the supposition that he was hostile to a Jewish homeland is completely false. Now, he was concerned about how to work out the arrangement of diplomatic relations regarding what would be done, how the Christian community would relate to the new Jewish state and how they would relate to the Arab community and so forth. Those are concerns that are still with us. But on the fundamental issue, was he sympathetic to a Jewish state? He was. He was, and this is confirmed. And by the way, and on Jeffrey's question of when did uh, when did the Vatican recognize? Not the until 1993, but that doesn't mean. And if, uh, let me. Yeah, can, I, can I can I reply to that? That's a, that's a fair point. I myself supported this uh, establishment in the state of Israel, but the Israeli Foreign Ministry themselves in 1948, and I have it right here. They said we understand why the Pope is hesitating uh, to establish formal declarations because I, there was a lot of. Uh, hostility, to put it mildly, among the Arab communities against Jews and against any Christians who supported them. And if he had done it at that time, it would have been, it would have been, created a ferocious attack against everyone and would have created a terrible situation. But one wait, last wait, wait. thing. No, no, let, let, let's move to take okay. another round of questions. This is, um, the, the, the lady uh, in, in the black and white shirt uh, up here, just, uh, yes. Uh, there are two in black and white shirts. Two, two in black and white shirts. <laughs> well, they must. Yes. So and then and then behind exactly. Um, and then and then ah sorry up yes. Um, I can hardly see, but I can I can I can see some waving. So we'll go upstairs after after you. Hi. So um, my name's Anne Throdall. Um, a very simple question after the very erudite previous questions. Um, what I thought was sort of the most interesting that the Khan speakers didn't address was that there were no requiem masses recognizing the loss of Jewish lives during the Holocaust. And is that the case? Are we just jaded because there have been so many remembrance services in modern times? Very, very good question. Um, then th there were two hands up at, in, the, in the balcony. Um, and then hold your questions for the next round. Uh, you've got a microphone coming, so two seconds. Uh, my question, I'm sorry, I'm can, can you Robert Carnathan. Um, my, my question was, do, might your present eyes sort of um, color how you see the situation? When we look back now, we're, we know that Hitler was a madman, Hitler was evil. But at the time, um, FDR, who I think was mentioned positively, was saying to his ambassador to the Nazi uh, court, take it easy, don't push back, just go along and don't make waves. And I wonder if the Pope at that time, if he's in it instead of looking back with the benefit of, of what we now know, does that maybe color how you view him? Because you think he should have been harder at the time. You, maybe you should have known, he should have known more. Okay, I think we've got that. And then there's someone just in front of you, yes. Well, I've got, sorry, my name's Nicholas Johnson. Um, I, I, there are two related questions. The first is really rather more, more of a point than a question, but isn't it correct to say that the British government itself had considerable misgivings about the creation of the State of Israel in 1947 <laughs> and 1948 and abstained? <laughs> to the belt. Um, firstly, um, uh, and um, secondly, perhaps the um, critics of the Pope, and I suppose by extension the institution of the Catholic Church might like to explain why the Nazis um, had such a bitter hatred of the Catholic Church, if it was such a, a, 
an emollient um, fellow traveller, why is it clear from their statements that if they had won the war that they would have taken action to exterminate and eradicate um, um, Roman Catholicism in Germany? And, 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 and I would add, not Lutheranism, since the Lutheran Church had largely gone over to the Nazis. Thank you. Okay, so the first question, would you like, who, who would like to take the question on requiem masses? No yeah. requiem masses. Yes, I will take that question. This is a completely misuninformed uh, assumption. If there's one thing we have to understand about Pope Pius XII is that he truly understood what the word Catholic means. Catholic means all-embracing. It means universal. Every time he said a mass, every time he issued praise, it was for everyone, and he constantly spoke about the suffering of the Jews. It is absolutely false to say that he was indifferent or silent. Uh, our, our colleague, uh, Mr. Robertson, stated that at no time did he ever speak out. I have, and he mentioned in particular the German foreign minister Ribbentrop. I have an article here in 1940, very early on in the war, which states Pope is emphatic about just peace, Jews' rights defend. And in the, in the body of the article, it says it was also learned today that in the confrontational meeting that Pius XII had with Ribbentrop, it was learned that uh, he, Pius XII also came to the defense of the Jews in Germany and Poland. So he did speak out, and he did so in a very personal way. Okay. That wasn't about masses. It is common ground, or it should be. It's historical fact. You can read it in John Julius's uh, book about the popes, uh, which isn't anti-Catholic. You can read it in Under His Very Windows, a very good book by Susan Zaccotti, although she'll probably be condemned as a communist dupe, uh, that uh, he didn't ever publicly mention the Jews, the gas chambers, or the final solution. Uh, there were Jeffrey, no is this, is this, is, oh, okay, this, this is uh, an answer to that question, yes, it is. is it? Because we do have a lot of questions to get through. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, I, I, I hope the simple is, fact is there were no masses. I okay? hope you frame that and that you're... Uh, um, now, the can, you, who, who would the like to make a comment? Who would like to make a comment on the difficulty, the historian's difficulty, of looking back? How do you judge what it would have been like to have been in that situation at the time? Are we using too much hindsight in condemning? Is this side using too much hindsight in condemning the Pope? Wasn't there quite a lot of condemning? Wasn't there quite a lot of ambivalence towards the Nazi regime? There was ambivalence towards the Nazi regime, I think, in the 1930s. Uh, certainly, by, uh, by 1939 there was virtually no ambivalence I know of in, in, in this country at all. There was considerable ambivalence, of course, in America. There, were, there, were, there was Lindbergh and Father Cochrane, and all, the, all that uh, strong isolationism. But in this particular country, I think we had absolutely, or with, with very, very few exceptions, uh, in the 1930s perhaps, yes, uh, but by 1940, uh, I mean, good heavens, yeah. we'd seen Hitler breaking every promise. Yeah. Uh, we'd seen, we'd, we'd let down Czechoslovakia ourselves. We weren't going to do it with Poland. He, it was perfectly obvious he was going to go on. It was nothing to do with Jews. I mean, he was, God, God knows he was doing uh, bad enough things with them. But this was also the, the, the general expansion, the aggrandizement of Nazi Germany. And nobody could watch that and, and, and not feel... Petrified. You can't be neutral in the face of the gas chambers, in the face of the final solution to exterminate a human race. Uh, you didn't know about the gas chambers. Well, towards the end they did. At the end they did. Yeah. Yes. And, and then neutrality, 
becomes a morality. Can I, can I and at the Nuremberg trials, it was fascinating, when they showed to the Nuremberg defendants and the whole court pictures of Belsen and Auschwitz that afternoon at Nuremberg, Goering and all the Nazi defendants hid their eyes. They couldn't face it. Nice. Uh, William, William Duina. Yes, I just want to say one thing very clearly. The fact of the matter is that Pope Pius XII did condemn the Holocaust in his 1942 Christmas dress, as well as in the June 2nd, 1943 allocution to the uh, College of Carlum, in which he explicitly used the term extermination of people based upon the race. Now, that was crystal clear language. Everybody at the time understood it. And so the claim is that once he knew, he did condemn. But is he that, didn't. He Here's did condemn it, and he was condemned by the Nazis as a mouthpiece of the Jewish war criminals for doing that. Mr. Robinson has things completely reversed. Where did he mention the Jews? He, he mentioned the Jews in the confrontational meeting did with Ribbentrop. Yeah, look he at that, right? Stir, ex ex race. He mentioned Jews in his very first encyclical, Summa Pontificat. Yeah, but not in the context, no, in the of, context of saying that we are all unified. Yeah, when, when, did he, when did he know that the final solution was underway? Well, he, he, he could not confirm it independently, but he knew that it was going on as, early, as late 1941, early 1942. And when, as the information came in, he had Vatican Radio Excuse and he me, Mr. I've got the actual words that he said to the College of Cardinals on the 2nd of June, 1943, on which you rely. Yes. He said, and I quote, those who have turned an anxiously imploring eye to us, tormented as they are, for reasons of their nationality or descent by major misfortunes and by more acute and grave suffering, and destined sometimes, even without guilt on their part, to exterminatory measures. No mention of Jews, Nazis, race, uh, or um, Excuse the gas chambers. That's your evidence? Uh, excuse me, that's not my evidence. Uh, we, have, we have a whole book, an 80,000-word annotated bibliography of evidence, which you obviously have not read. And I would like to say one thing. I've got I, it here. Yeah, no, excuse me. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not the book I was referring to. I Isn't have, it? That's no. Ron's book. Yes, that's, that's Ron's book. That's you a have, good book. I will be glad to... <laughs> I, I, I will be happy to send you an autographed copy of the pious work. Now, um, can we... Okay, thank you. There was, there was another very good question, which was, why, uh, if your side is right, did the Nazis hate the Catholic Church so, and the Catholic more than the Lutheran Church? Well, because the Catholics had stopped their extermination of the mentally disordered in the 30s. And I, have, I think it's very interesting that Hitler is supposed to have said to General Wolfe at one point, uh, that we might uh, have to attack the Vatican and you would be in charge of securing, protecting the Pope uh, and perhaps moving him to Liechtenstein under our protection. And Ribbentrop went mad and he sent this. Let me quote Ribbentrop. If you send an aircraft over to bomb the Vatican, it will be the last move we, the Nazis, will make. Our own people, the Germans, can overlook much even our attacks on priests in other countries. But if we attack the Vatican, we will most assuredly have a civil war in Germany within the hour the first bomb falls. So the Nazis, and, and that ended any question of attacking the Vatican. So the Nazis themselves were aware that if they bombed the Vatican, they'd have civil war in Germany. Uh, so I think that's uh, yet more uh, evidence to show that the Nazis really, all they asked of the Pope was to stay silent. 
So, so and they would never have the, the hatred of the church is evidence of the power of the church and a power which was not used. I think is the argument no, being well, made on that, this side, but, which is absurd. Uh, the the, uh, the it was the, the church's uh, continual intervention. Not see the point is it's not the pope; it's the bishops. It's it's at the local level because if the pope responds in a given way, that's applied across the universe, across the, the occupied area. A statement from the pope isn't going to get into occupied areas where the, everything is controlled. Uh, it's not gonna have any, in fact, that way. If it does, it's gonna lead to retaliation and bad stuff. So the Pope said, let my bishops, where they can press for more, do more. Let my bishops, where they know it's gonna cause bad stuff, uh, you know, do what they can. If the best we can do is hide and shelter, let's hide and shelter. If we can give false baptismal certificates so that Jews can show that they, in fact, have been baptized and therefore are not subject to deportation, let's do that. If we can provide food and clothing, let's do that. You know, whatever we can do, let's do as much as we can do, but let's do it by focusing on the ground level. Okay, now we're running short on time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take as many questions as I can take and if you could uh, listen to those questions and maybe integrate any points that you want to pick up in your summing up speeches. So the lady right in the front row, and then in the blue shirt, the front. Carol, Go. Con Carol Conrad, in amongst this very heated exchange, it seems to me we've lost sight of the motion which said Pope Pius did too little to save the Jews from the Holocaust. Many of Mr. Dono's statements show that he tried to do something, but that doesn't mean that he did enough. And I think we should, as we are about to vote, focus on what the motion is actually about. Very good. Can I, can I ask Jeffrey Robertson, my old friend? Can, um, can you introduce Sorry, yourself, Daniel please? Johnson, uh, editor of Standpoint. Uh, Jeffrey's one of my contributors. <laughs> um, can I ask him, is it or is it not the case that when the Dutch bishops uh, did condemn the deportation of the Jews, there was a massive roundup, uh, specifically actually of um, Jews who converted to Catholicism. One of the victims who was taken to Auschwitz was, of course, Edith Stein, uh, later canonized, great philosopher. Yes. Um, so, in other words, there was a genuine fear in the Vatican that uh, being too explicit. Uh, might lead to that kind of retaliation. And this wasn't a, a fantasy. This yeah. actually okay. happened. Understood. We, uh, we have someone up in the gallery. And while the microphone gets to you, um, the lady right in the middle in the, in, in the, in the um, stripe or tartan, I can't quite see. Uh, ah, and, and then we'll go to the bottom here and then to the gallery. No, no, sorry, wait a second. This one first. Hello, um, Helena Scott. Those who um, remember the storm of protest from Jewish people around the world, I think as late as the 1990s, when um, there was an attempt to establish a Carmelite convent at Auschwitz, um, the, there was such a protest from Jewish people that uh, the convent, in fact, had to be moved. Um, can those who remember this really condemn Pope Pius XII um, as anti-Jewish for not saying requiem masses for Jewish people, which might have provoked an equal protest for all we know. Um, secondly, um, those uh, coming back to this very thorny issue of the State of Israel, who look at the um, State of Israel now and the question of the Palestinian people and what is happening to them, 
can they really condemn Pope Pius XII as anti-Jewish for being reluctant to say firmly that the Jewish state should be in that particular piece of land? Thank you. Down here, and then we'll go up to the top. Yes. Um, my name's Selina O'Grady. Um, my question is a very simple one. Why, after the war, did the Pope not excommunicate any Nazis? Very good. In yeah. the gallery. Yeah, I'm Andrew Benson. Um, in, 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 those, in, in those difficult times, and, and um, uh, Geoffrey Robertson um, noted that it was an incredibly difficult times, uh, and he also noted that the Pope at that, that point in time was aware that, the, that Nazi Germany was killing priests. Um, he had to make difficult uh, decisions, and, and might he possibly have made the decision to try and protect his own flock as a priority over protecting a different flock, and that no matter how bad that was, and, and, and that wish to protect his flock was perceived or can be conveyed as anti-Semitism when it, when it was simply a decision of priority to protect his, his Catholic church. Okay. Um, we probably have time for just one or two very short questions. Um, uh, okay. Th th this one, yes, gentleman with the glasses, halfway well, up, and then the young man right at the back. Uh, my name's Simon Levine. I'm no relation to the Bolshevik Max. Um, <laughs> question for Ronald Richak. Do you think when the Pope died and he went to heaven and met St. Peter at the gates, St. Peter said, you did a great job and you were effective in, you know, at the edges, trying to uh, do the right thing down there on earth? Do you think that, that he would have got a pat on okay. the back? Or do you think that uh, I, I think we've got the by the greatest thing. judge that there is, uh, he might have been uh, marked down a little bit? Thank you. Um, and then final question. Uh, young man in the back, um, before our summing up speeches. Uh, I'm Thomas Burick, and um, uh, my question is, uh, if the Pope really wanted to save Jewish lives, then why didn't he uh, speak out uh, against Hitler, excommunicate him, and say about how bad, well, how horrible the things he had done Thank were? Thank you for that question. Um, right, we're now going to go to the vote. Remember that if you have been convinced by this side of the argument, then you want to put your agree slip in. If you've been convinced by this side of the argument, disagree. If you still don't know, please put both of them in. While the voting is going to be uh, uh, is proceeding, we will ask our speakers to sum up and to take into account the questions that they have just heard. So going in reverse order, Ronald. Okay. No, do st stay at stay oh, at your stay, uh, at, stay at stay right. at the table. Uh, sure. Um, so, so it, it, voting is important, but please let the speakers uh, please be quiet while the speakers sum up. I suppose, suppose two of the questions, one directed to me, uh, were fairly similar about how, in the end, we assess Pope Pius XII or how he is assessed. Uh, and I believe that in a very difficult situation, uh, he did what the best, I think he did the best thing that he could do. If we take the literal uh, uh, thing, po did Pope Pius did, do too little to save the Jews from the Holocaust? He didn't stop the Holocaust. He tried to stop the Holocaust. He wanted to stop the Holocaust. He asked for prayers. 
He, he, he tried to stop the war. I think no one doubts that he wanted to end the war. He tried to end the war, tried very hard to end the war. The Holocaust could not go on but for the war. If he'd been successful in avoiding the war or stopping the war, he would have prevented the Holocaust. He did what one man could do. I think he did more than any other individual did. I'll put the Allied armies ahead of him. But I think uh, there's a headline from the New York Times that says, uh, uh, the Pope is speaking out of the silence of a continent. Uh, he was the only one pointing his finger at Hitler. That was the 1942 New York Times uh, editorial, lead editorial. That Pius XII, more than ever, was, was identifying Hitler. In, in a very confined context, there's a matter of what can you do. Uh, the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, the Nazis despised the Pope. The rescuers cited him as their inspiration. And there were legion, uh, a legion of uh, victims who thanked him and offered him the, the, the greatest praise you could get, uh, from Golda Meir to virtually every major Jewish group, both at the uh, end of the war and again at his death, uh, wrote to the Vatican offering their thanks to him. Those are the real witnesses. Those are the people we need to listen to. And I appreciate you listening to me tonight. Thank you. Jeffrey, you have two to three minutes to sum up. Well, I'll only say this, that Edith Stein, who we share admiration for, wrote as early as 1933 a wonderful letter uh, saying that he should, uh, the former pope, should uh, issue an encyclical condemning uh, both the Nazi attacks on the Jews and the attacks on Catholics. And I agree uh, that there was a genuine argument in the Vatican uh, over whether speaking out would uh, cause more trouble than uh, it was worth, and the pros and cons were discussed. But over five years from uh, the beginning of the war in 39, right to the end, uh, it said every day it was discussed, every day the wrong decision, as the evidence comes out, as Auschwitz in 1944 becomes clear what is being done is of such monstrous and unprecedented evil that any man of God uh, in our submission must have done more than he did. Obviously, the Pope uh, didn't, was not a Nazi. He was not in Hitler's pocket. But he did what the, Nazi wanted, the Nazis wanted. All they wanted was that he should remain silent, and he did. When the Germans entered Rome, there was one thing von Weisecker did want. He wanted a document to satisfy, to, to satisfy the world that they treated the Vatican well. And the Pope signed that document. Uh, he went on, as you've heard from those telegrams, which I think are devastating evidence that the Pope did not do as much as he could and uh, for the leader of a great religion as much as he should. He should have spoken out. Uh, there were certainly concerns that speaking out would lead to more danger. Uh, as I've read you from von Ribbentrop's uh, memorandum to Hitler, there was never any doubt that the Germans, would, that the Nazis would not have bombed uh, or attacked the Pope, by, or, or they would have had civil war. But uh, to make, to wake up every morning in 
between 1939, or in fact it was first known with uh, Slovakia in 1941 and Croatia, uh, until the very end of the war, until, in our view, until 1958 when he died. Uh, he never spoke out to denounce this horror. He could have done more. William Duino, you uh, have Thank you very much. Uh, I think we've already replied to the statements that our opponents have made. The Pope did speak out. He did intervene quite forcefully during the German occupation of Rome, and the Nazis hated him because of it. I'd just like to bring the, the subject back to uh, what the lady said very generously. She said, I have shown that the Pope, of course, did something, but did he do enough? Ladies and gentlemen, could any of us say that anyone did enough when six million people died? No one, quote, did enough, not even the most righteous gentile. That's not the question whether one person had the power to do enough. You could always say that if even the most righteous gentile. The question was, given the extreme situation, the life and death daily situation that Pope Pius XII faced, did he do what was reasonably expected of the vicar of Christ? And we know from the Catholic rescuers themselves the answer is an overwhelming yes. Let me just cite you one priest who was in turn in the concentration camp, what he had to say about this matter. He said, during, Pius the quote, this is Father Michel, Michel Requet, who spent years in a concentration camp because of uh, his stand against the Nazis, quote, Pius XII has spoken. Pius XII has condemned. Pius XII has acted. Throughout those years of horror, when we listened to Radio Vatican and to the Pope's messages, we felt in communion with the Pope in helping persecuted Jews and in fighting against Nazi violence. I pointed out in my opening statement that as early as 1930, as the Cardinal Secretary of State, Adolf Hitler himself was condemned. The German bishops, in fact, did try excommunication against Hitler and the Nazis, and it didn't work. People who are apostates, who are madmen, they don't pay attention to things like that, okay? One last thing I want to say. If there's one, I, I want to say this from the bottom of my heart, okay? I have spent years uh, involved in the Jewish-Christian dialogue. And if I believe for one second that Pope Pius XII was anti-Semitic, that he did not do enough, that he did too little, that he turned his back on the Jewish community, I would not defend him. I would not have come all the way to America to defend someone who I thought was a bad person. The reason, but the reason I am doing so, ladies and gentlemen, is because every person I have spoken to who has worked with Pope Pius XII, in, during the rescue of so many Jews, countless Jews, told me that he was a good and honorable and decent man. And I'd just like to end with one quotation from one of the dearest priests that I know, Monsignor John Patrick Carroll Abing. In his book, But for the Grace of God, he goes over all the questions that have been raised tonight. And he says, comparing what was actually being done at the time by the Pope to what is now said today, he said, quote, never in those tragic days could I have foreseen, even in my wildest imaginings, that the man who, more than any other, had tried to alleviate human suffering, had spent himself day by day in the unceasing efforts of doing so, who would, years later, be made the scapegoat for men trying to free themselves from their own responsibilities and from the collective guilt that obviously weighs so heavily upon them. This is a testimony of a man himself, Monsignor Carroll Abing, who fought the Nazis in conjunction with Pope Pius XII to rescue so many Jews. And one last question. I think it's very important for us not to allow this situation, not to allow this controversy, wherever we stand, uh, to drive a wedge between the Jewish and Christian community. It's, uh, we have come so far in so many ways, and it's too important to allow the bonds of unity that we have among Christians and Jews to allow 
good faith contributions like this, but I do believe the evidence is turning in favor of Pius XII as indicated by Yad Vashem, and I'm very encouraged about the future. Thank you all very much. John Julius Orridge, you have three minutes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, why are we all here? We're here to debate. We, if, if, if Pius XII had not left us with some very, very nasty questions uh, on our minds, uh, we would not be here this evening. There's no smoke without a fire. We all have heard. We have all <laughs> known. We have all Sometimes read. Some of us even remember. What? Some, some, some of us even remember. Uh, the rage and frustration that people felt at the time. I can remember my father in an absolute fury um, about, about, the, about the silence of, of, of Paul. He, uh, he, uh, he, he made absolutely no secret of it. He had a tremendous rows with his Catholic friends who tried to, uh, to, to, defend, to defend it. I think the problem was we all know that, he, that, that, that Pius didn't speak out, whatever our uh, most eloquent um, friends say here about it, the fact remains that even they have not actually been able to produce quotations where he spoke in public mentioning the Germans, the Nazis, and the Jews. This, there, is, there, is, there is no such quotation, because he'd be very careful not to do it. And All right, he, perhaps he felt that he was saving people's lives and all that, but I think if you are the leader of the greatest if you are a moral leader of the, of, 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 of the scale of the Pope, you mustn't, you, you, you can't hide behind what you think may be better for people. You've got to speak out. You've got to lead. You can't lead from behind and say, oh, well, it, it, it's so dangerous and a lot of people might, uh, might get killed. You've got to stand up and say what you believe. And this is what Pope Pius XII did not do. I think that's, it, it seems to me to be as, as plain as that. Uh, here is a man who believed possibly that he, he was doing right, but in fact he was doing desperately, desperately wrong. And I think probably one of the reasons, I'm afraid, was cowardice. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, so in a fantastic debate, and the vote is in. If you remember, uh, before, the, before the debate, 170 of you didn't know. Um, a lot of work convincing has been done, and it's now at 28. Now, where did those votes go? We had 146 before the debate for the motion and 41 against. Coming out of the debate, we have 227 for the motion and 103 against. So the fours carry the motion, and they also carried the largest number of don't knows. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. <laughs>